0: I sing of war, of holy war and him, Captain who freed the sepulchre of Christ. Greatly he wrought by force of mind and limb, And greatly suffered, nobly sacrificed. Vainly did hell oppose him, Asia grim, Vainly combined with Libya, hell enticed. Heaven favored him and guided back to fight, Under his sacred flag, each errant night. Five years had passed since on their eastward course, The Christian warriors launched their lofty quest. Nicaea was already theirs by force, great Antioch too by stratagem possessed. This they defended in protracted wars with Persia's countless host, even as they pressed onward and conquered Tardis next. But here, harsh winter made them bide the coming year. The winter rains were ceasing their control of the army's power to resume the war. When from his lofty throne, beneath which roll, unblemished spheres of holy bliss as far, as from hell's center to the utmost pole, so far is heaven beyond the highest star, the Eternal Father downward casts his eyes, and in one flash sees all the earth and skies. All things he saw then cast in the domain, of Syria upon Christian leaders that exact, gaze of his which will pierce the souls of men, To their inmost wills, there he saw Godfrey racked with a pure need to oust the Saracen. From Salem's hallowed ground, a man compact, of faith and zeal, to whom the joys of earth, the fame, the sway, the spoils, were nothing worth. But in Baldwin next he sees a grasping soul, intent on grandeurs of the humankind. Sees Tancred hold life cheap in the control of a hopeless love, the torment of his mind and sees how Bohemond makes it his goal to refound Antioch to him assigned, and in his new reign to establish law, good customs, arts, and true religion's awe. Said God unto his messenger, Go find Godfrey, and ask him in my name, What need, for more delay? Why is the fight declined, by which enslaved Jerusalem shall be freed? Let him call his chiefs to council and remind, the truants of their task, for he shall lead, I elect him here, on earth, through their election. They, once his peers, shall fight by his direction. Hello and welcome to History of the Outremer, episode 2.15, Let Godfrey Lead. Today, we're introducing the last of our crusade leaders, Godfrey of Bouillon. Before we get started, though, I need to spoil two things about Godfrey's future. Number one, Godfrey will eventually become the first ruler of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And number two, Godfrey will die in the year 1100, about a year after becoming ruler of Jerusalem. That second point is important because it means that Godfrey will almost immediately become a mythical figure. His death will allow everyone the chance to immortalize him as the ideal crusader, the protagonist of great romantic epics. This mythologizing will start pretty much immediately after his death with the works of near contemporaries and only increase in intensity over the following centuries. As historian Simon John puts it in Godfrey of Bouillon, Duke of Lower Lotharingia, ruler of Latin Jerusalem, circa 1060 to 1100, quote, by the end of the 13th century then, Godfrey had been transformed into a hero of crusading history, writers held him up as an example for contemporary crusaders to follow. His memory was used to add stimulus to new crusading experiences, and his name was invoked in order to provide a point of comparison with contemporary crusading activity. Crucially. Whereas earlier authors had produced fully-rounded treatments of Godfrey's life, character, and exploits on the First Crusade, in the 13th century, Godfrey was often conjured up with little or no introduction. By the end of the 13th century, then, Godfrey had become iconic of crusading history. It is as a crusading icon that he appears in Dante's Divine Comedy, one of the most celebrated pieces of world literature. Dante wrote his Divine Comedy between about 1308 and 1321 and the popularity of Dante's masterpiece has helped to ensure that Godfrey has continued to be remembered in the centuries since its composition. Godfrey's reputation did not cease to evolve at the turn of the 14th century The last vestiges of Latin-held territory in the Holy Land fell in 1291, and in the years that followed, a number of authors wrote treatises, setting out plans for the recovery of Jerusalem and the reconstruction of the Latin East. Significantly, Godfrey is mentioned in a number of these recovery treatises, but while the events of 1291 conditioned many recollections of Godfrey at the turn of the 14th century, the same era also heralded the moment at which his reputation assumed a monumentally significant new dimension. In about 1312, the Lotharingian poet Jacques de Longuillon composed the The Dupin, a poem of over 8,000 lines, which he interpolated into his romance on the life of Alexander. At one point in this text, it is recounted that a character named Porus fought with such ferocity that he had surpassed the feats of nine of the most formidable warriors from history. The poet then related the careers of each of these nine men. Hector, Julius Caesar, and Alexander featured as a trio of pagan heroes. Then came three biblical figures, Joshua, David, and Judas Maccabeus. The final three consisted of a triad of Christian heroes, King Arthur, Charlemagne, and Godfrey of Bouillon. These nine figures from history were carefully selected to epitomize the ideals of chivalry. The roster had a powerful symmetry which neatly reflected the medieval division of history into three ages. Arthur and Charlemagne were, by this time, the chief protagonists of the matters of Britain and France and they were incorporated into the roster to bring chivalry into the context of Christian history. By this time, Godfrey too had attained iconic status. His memory was therefore conscripted into the list, in order to symbolize the contemporary relevance of the Crusades to the aspirations of chivalry. This roster of nine historical warriors became known as the Neuf Preux, the Nine Worthies. The cult of the Nine Worthies evolved into one of the most influential cultural motifs of the later Middle Ages, one which was celebrated and commemorated in a wide range of literature, art, and music in the centuries that followed. It was as a member of this illustrious pantheon that Godfrey was chiefly remembered in the later Middle Ages. Quote. As the Middle Ages came to a close and the early modern era began to romanticize it, Figures such as Godfrey became avatars of a nobler age, often used to criticize the behavior of contemporaries. And that brings us to our opening, an English translation by Max Wickert of La Gerusalemme Liberata, Jerusalem Liberated, first published in 1581 by the Italian poet Torquato Tasso. One of Tasso's motivations was to spur his patron, Alfonso d'Este, Duke of Ferrara, to wage war against the Thracians, by which he meant the Ottoman Turks. Tasso lived during the 16th century, the golden age of the Barbary Corsairs, pirates in the service of the Ottoman Empire, and sometimes the Kingdom of France, who terrorized the Mediterranean coasts, raiding and slaving. Meanwhile, the Ottoman Empire itself threatened to conquer all of Europe as it spread through the Balkans so implicit in Tassel's praise of Godfrey, is in fact a not-so-subtle slight against Alfonso. When he says, Perhaps one day my prescient pen will try boldly to write what now mere hints imply, he's basically saying, Maybe one day you'll be worthy of the same praise if you get off your fat ass and fight these corsairs. Harsh words for one's patron. By the 16th century, Godfrey of Bouillon was less of a real person and more of a blank slate onto which poets could paint their ideal Christian knight. And I would say that even nowadays, this history informs modern perceptions of Godfrey. He's always most heroic and humble, because, well, that's the traditional portrayal. And all this, of course, makes glimpsing the man behind the myth all that much harder. As we'll come to see, Godfrey was far from the undisputed leader of the crusade that Daso and others would like us to believe. And his role in the crusade was less based on his individual merits and strongly tied to his family background. So today, we'll be getting into that family background, because Godfrey and his family were deeply tangled up in the political controversy of the day, the conflict between the Reform Papacy and the Holy Roman Empire, a conflict we've already explored, most in depth in episodes 2.2 and 2.5. So let's get into it. Before we even talk about Godfrey of Bouillon, Duke of Lorraine, we have a very pressing question to deal with. What's a Lorraine? Here, we have to quickly wrap up a tale we left off in episode 2.2, The Death of the Carolingian Empire. If you recall, in 843 at the Treaty of Verdun, Charlemagne's grandsons divvied up the empire amongst themselves. The youngest son, Charles the Bald, received West Francia, which covered roughly speaking what we would think of as france nowadays the middle son louis the german received east francia roughly speaking germany and austria hence louis the german and the eldest son lothair also pronounced lothar received nominally the title of emperor of the romans but in reality, he only directly controlled Middle Francia, which covered both northern Italy and that one solid country in between France and Germany, with lovely natural borders. Wait, what do you mean there's no such country? Here's the thing. Middle Francia as an independent realm was a ridiculous proposition. The bottom half, the Italian bit, was cut off from the rest by the Alps, and the northern half was a long, skinny chunk of land sandwiched between West and East Francia. It was also split linguistically between a wide variety of Romance and Germanic languages. It was not viable, and the real reason it had been created was to give Lothair possession of both the ancestral Frankish capital of Aachen and the religious Christian capital, Rome. When Lothair died 12 years later, in 855, he split Middle Francia between his three sons, His eldest son, Louis II, received the imperial title and control of the Kingdom of Italy. The youngest son, Charles, received what is now roughly speaking the regions of Provence and Burgundy in eastern France. And the middle son, named after his father, Lothair II, received the northern part, which stretched, again roughly speaking, from what's now Switzerland up to Belgium and the Netherlands. And if you know your modern European history, you might recognize this region as the playground for many a war between France and Germany. You might, of course, even notice that countries like Belgium and Switzerland speak both French and German, a linguistic marker of their position on the border between the Romance speakers of what was once West Francia and the Germanic speakers of what was once East Francia. This northern chunk of Middle Francia lacked any sort of cohesion or regional identity, and it became known as Lothair's realm. In the Germanic languages of the region, Lotharing, with that suffix "-ing", indicating a possession. You can see the same naming pattern in English place names, like Reading and Ewing. Unrelated to the verbal suffix "-ing", by the way, it's in uh, running and jumping. Lotharing was then Latinized as Lotharingia, that ia just marks countries and regions. From the beginning, this kingdom of Lotharingia was very unstable. After Lothar II's death, it was split between East and West Francia. It would briefly become an independent kingdom later on, but eventually the rulers of Lotharingia had to settle for the title of Duke, and they drifted into the control of what became the Holy Roman Empire of the Germans. Over time, Latin Lotharingia became French Lorraine, and that's where the term Lorraine comes from. In 959, the first Holy Roman Emperor, Otto I, split the Duchy of Lorraine into two parts an Upper Lorraine, or Lotharingia, which was actually in the south. The upper bit refers to the elevation, similar to the Hoch, High in Hochdeutsch, High German. And a Lower Lorraine, in the north. The lower bit, as in the Low Countries and also the Netherlands, referring to the Lower Elevation. Upper Lorraine was centered around the now French cities of Metz, Trier, and Toul, while Lower Lorraine controlled what is now Luxembourg, nearly all of the Netherlands, including Utrecht, about half of Belgium, including Liège, a small bit of France around the region of Cambrai, and a portion of Germany, centered around Cologne. Yeah, as that random list of regions indicates, Lower Lorraine in particular was not going to survive long as an independent political unit. Lorraine as a whole was a mess of culturally distinct local powers and foreign meddling, and it was out of this stew that sprung Godfrey of Bouillon's family, the House of Ardennes, distant matrilineal descendants of Charlemagne. The family, who would nowadays be classified as Belgian Walloons, that is, French speakers, Came to hold land and offices throughout both Upper and Lower Lorraine, which they obtained by means of close alliances with the German kings, and later emperors. In 959, when Otto I had split the Duchy of Lorraine, he had granted rule of Upper Lorraine to a member of this family, the Count of Bar, Frederick, who became the founder of the Ardennes Bar branch of the family. And around the same time, Otto also gave control of the city of Verdun to Frederick's nephew, Godfrey the Captive, who spun off his own branch of the family, known as the Ardennes-Verdun branch. Godfrey the Captive was Godfrey of Bouillon's great-great-grandfather. And by the way, Godfrey is to the Lotharingians what Raymond is to the Provençals. These families just pick one name and run with it. Hence the need for nicknames, like The Captive. Godfrey the Captive received his nickname because he was taken prisoner multiple times. Most notably by the Carolingian king of West Francia, who had invaded East Francia up to Aachen. Godfrey was eventually released by none other than Hugh Capet, who was a close ally of Godfrey's brother, Adalbero, and who would go on to be crowned King of France by Adalbero, starting the Capetian line that would rule France for eight centuries until the French Revolution. Anyway, when Godfrey the Captive died in 1002, he was succeeded as Count of Verdun by his son, Godfrey the Courageous, also known as Godfrey the Childless, which we'll get to. Now, in 1012, the ruler of Lower Lorraine died childless. Remember, Upper Lorraine was ruled by a member of the Ardenbar branch of the family. And at this point, the current Holy Roman Emperor, Henry II, decided to give the duchy to Godfrey the Courageous. After all, the Ardennes family in general was very loyal to the emperor, so he felt he could trust the Count of Verdun. By the way, throughout all this, random kings and dukes and counts from West Francia, which I'm just going to call France from now on, well, they keep trying to invade East Francia, and Lower Lorraine in particular is the flatland passageway they love to use. So the German kings were always careful with who they gave control of the region to. In 1023, Godfrey the Courageous slash Childless died... Childless, and control of Lower Lorraine passed to his brother, Gothello, Godfrey of Bouillon's great grandfather. Gothello continued to loyally serve the Holy Roman Emperors, and in 1033 this loyalty was rewarded, when the Duke of Upper Lorraine, Frederick III of the Ardennes Bar branch of the family, died young with no heirs. The Emperor Conrad II decided the time was right to reunite Upper and Lower Lorraine. This would make sure that his western flank was a more solid shield against French invasion. So he gave Gothello, Duke of Lower Lorraine, control of Upper Lorraine as well. For the first time in over 70 years, Lorraine was reunited, and it felt oh so good. But this reunification was not to last. In 1044, Gothello died. And when his son, Godfrey the Bearded, Godfrey of Bouillon's grandfather, attempted to inherit both duchies... He got a slap on the hand from the new German king, Henry III. We've talked about Henry III a few times. He's the one who deposed three popes at once. He's also the one who first gave the Otviels the title of Count, to William, Iron Arm of Oatville. Henry was in a much more powerful position than his predecessors had been in, and he didn't need such a powerful Lotharingian duchy. So he decided to split it once more. He allowed Godfrey to keep control of Upper Lorraine, but refused his inheritance of Lower Lorraine. Instead, he gave Lower Lorraine to Godfrey's brother, named after their father, Gothello II, who the sources hint may have had some sort of mental handicap. Some sources say Henry claimed that Gothello Sr.'s deathbed wish had been to split the duchy in this way. But more likely than not, Henry was attempting to both exert his own power and limit that of the family ardennes Verdun. Godfrey the Bearded was pissed. See, he was operating based on some of the newer political ideas that had sprung up after the collapse of the Carolingian Empire. The rights of local lords to pass their titles and offices onto their heirs. While the future emperor of the Romans, Henry, was clearly more in the mold of the Carolingians, he viewed these offices as appointments, that he could dole out to whomever he so chose. Godfrey wrote to Henry saying that if he received both ducal offices, he would be a loyal servant. Henry interpreted this as Godfrey saying, unless he received both ducal offices, he would revolt. And to be fair to Henry's interpretation, that's kind of what happened. Kind of. At the end of 1044, the king stripped Godfrey the Bearded of all his offices, including the Duchy of Upper Lorraine. Godfrey was left with no choice but to rebel, really. However, this rebellion was short-lived, and Godfrey ended up incarcerated in less than a year. The king apparently took pity on Godfrey the Bearded and not only released him, but in 1046, when Godfrey prostrated himself on the ground before the king in Aachen, Henry agreed to restore Godfrey's right to rule as duke in Upper Lorraine. Meanwhile, Godfrey's brother, Gothello, died. And if Godfrey had had any hopes of once again reuniting Upper and Lower Lorraine, these were soon dashed. King Henry gave control of Lord Lorraine to Frederick of Luxembourg, and the office passed out of the hands of the family Arden Verdun, to the shame of Godfrey the Bearded. So we really shouldn't be too surprised that when at the end of 1046, Henry III went down to Rome to depope three would-be popes, make a deal with the Normans, and be crowned Holy Roman Emperor, Godfrey the Bearded decided to rebel once more. This time, he made sure he wasn't alone. He cemented alliances with various other powers throughout not only Germany, but across the western border in France. And this time, Godfrey's rebellion would have a much more devastating effect on the newly minted Emperor of the Romans. Godfrey raided and pillaged up to the River Rhine and destroyed the imperial palace itself. When he captured the city of Verdun, which had been the ancestral home of his family for generations, he burned the cathedral. Sources indicate that this was a step too far for Godfrey, and that he soon recognized the need for penitence, so he had himself publicly whipped and personally funded the cathedral's restoration. I kinda prefer public whippings to our modern equivalent of public penitence, screenshots of notepad apps shared on Instagram and Twitter. Like, you know what, Damon Albarn? I love gorillas, I'm literally wearing a gorilla's tee right now, but you went a step too far when you said Taylor Swift doesn't write her own songs time for a lashing. Religious concerns also seem to have been the final blow that ended Godfrey's second rebellion. In 1049, one of Emperor Henry's popes, Leo IX, traveled to Lorraine. You remember Leo IX, right? He was the one who sent the papal legates to Constantinople and caused the Great Schism of 1054. Leo also excommunicated Godfrey the Bearded, which apparently scared him straight. He surrendered, and he was once again imprisoned, stripped of his ducal office, and a couple years later, in 1051, he was freed. Now, are we sure this guy doesn't deserve the name Godfrey the Captive instead of his grandpa? That must have been some beard. Anyway, in 1053, Godfrey's first wife, Doda, died. The two had had two children, a daughter named Ida, and a son named, of course, Godfrey, Godfrey the Hunchback. Something tells me these guys don't get to pick their own nicknames. Godfrey was now landless and wifeless, which gave him an idea. He coordinated a marriage with an interesting choice, Beatrice of Bar. As that name indicates, she was a member of the ardenne Bar family. That means Beatrice was Godfrey's distant cousin. Her brother had been Frederick III, Duke of Upper Lorraine. You know, the one who died and then had all his lands given to Godfrey's father. So the two would have been acquainted with one another, and both would have been very interested in bringing prominence to the Ardennes family once more. Here's the thing. Beatrice was a widow herself. Her first marriage had been to Boniface, Margrave of Tuscany. Boniface died in 1052. He was murdered while hunting, apparently. Uh, He was an asshole, it seems like, and it's not really clear who did the deed. His son Frederick, who was still a child, inherited rule of Tuscany, with his mother Beatrice as regent. Frederick died soon after, and rule of Tuscany passed to his young sister, Matilde di Canossa, the future Gran Contessa. This meant that when Godfrey the Bearded married Beatrice in 1054, he was assuming control over Tuscany via his new wife and stepdaughter. Coupled with the two's influence in Lorraine, this was shaping up to be a quasi-reunion of Middle Francia, with Lorraine and Northern Italy united once again. Unsurprisingly, the emperor saw this marriage as not only a threat, but betrayal. He marched down to Italy, and despite Godfrey's claims that he was only marrying Beatrice in an attempt to survive after losing his position in Lorraine, and that he had no intention of defying the emperor, Henry launched an attack against Beatrice and Godfrey. Godfrey managed to escape to Lorraine, but Beatrice and Matilde were captured in Florence and taken as hostages to Germany. However, in 1056... The emperor, who was only in his late thirties, began to realize he was sick and not long for this world, and that soon rule would pass to his five-year-old son, Henry IV. He couldn't allow his son to inherit the mess he'd made with Godfrey, so he reached out to him, and the two made amends. Henry III pardoned both Godfrey and Beatrice, presumably in return for their support of his young son, Henry IV. Later that year, the Holy Roman Emperor of the Germans, Henry III, died, and his five-year-old son, Henry IV, succeeded him as king of the Germans, though not, crucially, emperor yet. The new king's regent, his mother Agnes, confirmed Godfrey's possession of certain territories in Lorraine, and may have even promised to eventually return the duchies entirely to him, which is all the guy had wanted since 1044. Now, at this time, apart from mending the relationship with the German court, Godfrey was also building bridges with a new power rising in Italy, the papacy. Despite Godfrey's excommunication, his brother Frederick had actually been a key ally of Pope Leo IX. In fact, Frederick had been the papal secretary of the delegation sent to Constantinople in 1054. And in 1056, when Pope Victor II died, Frederick was chosen to succeed him, becoming Pope Stephen IX. We touched on this back in episode 2.2. The fact that Henry IV was just a child meant that the papacy had to look elsewhere for allies. This reality would eventually lead them to ally with the Normans as well. In electing Pope Stephen, the church was betting that this would earn them the support of the new pope's brother, Godfrey the Bearded, who was probably the most powerful vassal in the whole of the Holy Roman Empire. And if you've been keeping track of the family thus far, you know that Godfrey the Bearded was Godfrey of Bouillon's grandfather, and this means Godfrey of Bouillon's great uncle was Pope Stephen IX, one of the papal legates that caused the great schism. The naming of Pope Stephen IX also had implications for the relationship between Rome and Godfrey the Bearded's wife and stepdaughter. The fact that Matilda's stepuncle was the pope explains how she got involved with them eventually becoming the Reform Papacy's most important secular ally. Godfrey the Bearded would go on to wage war in support of two future Reform Popes, personally installing in the Lateran Nicholas II after his brother's death and then Alexander II after Nicholas's death. Matilde actually accompanied her stepfather during that last campaign, stating that she also served St. Peter. Prescient words considering that she would go on to become a member of Pope Gregory VII's fan club, St. Peter's faithful. Godfrey the Bearded's profile continued to rise as he became one of the young king's closest supporters. And in 1065, when Henry IV came of age, Godfrey played a key role in the ceremony marking Henry's passage to adulthood. And when Frederick of Luxembourg died later that year, Godfrey was immediately given control of Lower Lorraine. Remember, Godfrey's second rebellion, 22 years earlier, had been precipitated by Henry III's decision to give Lower Lorraine to Frederick. But victory was to be short-lived for Godfrey the Bearded. Less than four years later, his health began to fail, and so he traveled to Verdun, where he wished to die and be buried, paying a final penance for the destruction of the city's cathedral all those years ago. A month later, on Christmas Eve 1069, he died. At this point, the German king, Henry IV, was in no position to contest what went on in Lorraine or anywhere else. So Godfrey's son, Godfrey the Hunchback, had no issue inheriting Lower Lorraine. Godfrey the Hunchback was about 25 years old at the time of his father's death and as his nickname indicates, he had some sort of physical deformity. However, the sources say this was balanced by his intelligence, and whatever his condition, it doesn't appear to have limited him physically or prevent him from being successful on the battlefield either. Here's the thing, folks. Um, Godfrey the Hunchback is one of my favorite historical figures from the ones we've discussed thus far on the show. Just based exclusively on the course of his life during the five years following his father's death. Sometime before Godfrey the Bearded's death, he and his wife Beatrice appeared to have suddenly noticed that they had no kids together and no one to carry on the alliance between Tuscany and Lorraine they'd worked so hard for. However, they did have kids from previous marriages who were almost exactly the same age. Hmm. Huh. Interesting. Yep. Godfrey and Beatrice arranged for their kids, step-siblings, Godfrey and Matilde, to marry. And like, let's remember that Godfrey and Beatrice had gotten married in 1054, when both Godfrey and Matilde were about 10, so they likely grew up together to a certain extent. They seemed to have been betrothed at some point in the 1050s, so maybe they had time to get used to the idea? Anyway, a marriage between their two kids seemed to be the best way to ensure the survival of the Tuscany-Loren alliance, and in 1070, the same year Godfrey the Hunchback became Duke of Lower Lorraine, he married his stepsister. I will just let you guys make your, your puns and jokes. Uh, how about that? Godfrey and Mathilde apparently had a daughter in 1071 who died just a few months later. And maybe it was that loss or the fact that they were step siblings, but the marriage broke down shortly after. Sources indicate that Mathilde didn't want to live in Lorraine with her husband anymore, and she returned to Italy shortly after the death of their daughter. In 1072, Godfrey also went down to Italy, hoping to fix his marriage. He even brought a gift. Apparently, Godfrey's father had given an ivory casket of some sort to a nearby abbey. The casket had belonged originally to Mathilde's father, and now Matilde wanted it back. So Godfrey told the abbot to fork over the casket or else then he took the casket down south to italy and presented it to matilde but still no dice godfrey stayed in italy until mid-1073 when word came that the saxons were in revolt again we briefly touched on this but henry IV's first years as an adult king of the germans were spent trying to put down the saxons well godfrey the hunchback's forces were apparently crucial to this effort From 1073 to 1075, he aided Henry in putting down the Saxon Rebellion, which seems to have earned him the king's trust. When a replacement was needed for the bishopric of Liège, Henry asked Gregory for his choice, and Gregory recommended a cousin for the job. Liège was an important position, and Henry must have felt that Gregory was not only trustworthy, but astute. Something else happened in 1073, though. That was the year Pope Gregory assumed his seat in the Lateran. Now, you might think that because of the conflict between Gregory and Henry, Godfrey, an ally of Henry's, would have naturally been an enemy of Gregory's. But that's not really the case. Remember that the relationship between Gregory and Henry didn't really break down until 1075 or so. In 1073, when Gregory was elected, Godfrey wrote to the new pope congratulating him. After all, his father had been instrumental in the naming of the last two reform popes, and Gregory had been a member of the papal curia for years. The two almost certainly knew each other personally. In fact, Gregory seems to have been trying to repair Godfrey's relationship with Matilde, playing papal couples therapist, to the estranged spouses. The dynamic duo of Godfrey the Bearded and Beatrice of Bar had, after all, managed to ensure the survival of the reformed papacy during the minority of Henry IV. In 1074, when Pope Gregory was making his plans for an expedition that would first destroy the Normans in southern Italy, and then battle the Turks that were menacing the Byzantine Roman Empire, Gregory seems to have counted on Godfrey's support he sent various letters indicating that Beatrice, Margravine of Tuscany, her daughter Matilde, and her son-in-law, Godfrey, would be key leaders in the expedition. However, not only did the expedition flop like a dead fish, Godfrey the Hunchback didn't even show. Gregory wrote him a letter asking, quote, Where is the help that you guaranteed? Where are the knights that you promised us you would lead for the honor and support of St. Peter? End quote. However, Gregory did leave the door open for reconciliation. He also said, quote, "...should you be willing, fixedly, to stand fast in the thing that you have promised, namely, to adhere to St. Peter from the heart. We shall hold you as a most dear son, and you will hold us, unworthy though we are, nevertheless, as a kind father." End quote. And he told Beatrice and Matilde that if a reconciliation was possible, he'd be willing to forgive Godfrey. That's one thing that's important about Gregory. He didn't really have a long memory. If you were willing to play by his rules, he was willing to work with you. He could be vengeful, for example, making Henry do the walk to Canossa we talked about in episode 2.2, but he was willing to let bygones be bygones. After all, he eventually allied with Robert Guiscard after trying to organize a proto-crusade against the guy. Now, as for Godfrey's side... There's reason to believe Godfrey's marital issues were what had stopped him from traveling to Italy to help Gregory, and I think it's important to grasp the enormity of what happened here. Godfrey the Bearded had a very powerful army. He was the German king's best retainer. If Godfrey had decided to follow through on Gregory's plan, he could have very well beaten the snot out of Robert Guiscard in southern Italy, then traveled on to Constantinople and aided Michael Lucas. That was Gregory's plan, Remember? That means a few things. One, no Normans in southern Italy anymore. Sicily probably stays a Muslim emirate. Also, it's very unlikely that Alexios Komnenos would ever come to power, and the main Turkmen powers in Anatolia would lose the chance to plant roots there. In return, Mikhail Lucas would likely have had to at least try to mend the schism along lines that favored the papacy. However, I doubt he would have had the political power to do so. But it still completely changes history. Not only the history of the Outremer, as there would probably be no First Crusade, at least not anything like what we think of when we think of the First Crusade, if all this had happened. Uh, and also the, the history of the world, as the Byzantine Roman Empire would likely have had a very different trajectory. All because Gregory the Hunchback and de Canossa's step-sibling marriage worked out. What are you doing, step-bro? Oh, just directing the flow of history. That's not what happened, though. In reality, Gregory's plan fizzled out, and the relationship between the papacy and the German king grew as estranged as Godfrey Matilde's marriage. In 1075, things came to a head when King Henry refused to obey the restriction on papal investiture and named a bishop of Milan of his choosing. Later that year, Gregory published a scouring denunciation of Henry's actions, and Henry responded with the Synod of Worms a month later, On January 24th, 1076. At the Synod of Worms, King Henry denounced the Pope and moved to depose him. After all, Henry's dad had deposed three popes at once. So Junior figured he could deal with at least one, right? Godfrey the Hunchback was present at the Synod of Worms. He was the most powerful secular ruler to participate, apart from the king himself. And some accounts state that Godfrey took a leading role during the proceedings. The Synod of Worms listed reasons why Gregory was unfit to be Pope, and one of those was his alleged sexual relationship with Matilde di Canossa, Godfrey's wife and stepsister. (music) Yep, apparently Godfrey was a key leader at a synod which claimed his stepsister and the Pope had made a cuckold of him. I told you, this guy's the best. And this is actually a possible explanation as for why Godfrey had refused to aid Gregory with his proto-crusade of 1074. But wait, it only gets better. One month later, in February of 1076, Godfrey the Hunchback was murdered in Antwerp. We have three sources that tell us how he was murdered, and each account is better than the last. Lampert of Hersfeld says Godfrey went to answer the call of nature and was stabbed through the buttocks. Berthold of Reichenau says he, quote, was wounded from below by a certain knight while he was sitting in a privy, relieving nature. And last but not least, Bernold of St. Blasien says he, quote, was wounded in the posterior in a shameful manner by a certain cook while he was at stool, And he died before the middle of Lent. Folks, let me tell you, before researching for this episode, I did not know this story. You know, that's life. One moment, you're looking into the political context surrounding a crusade leader's predecessor, and the next, you're reading about how some guy married his stepsister, then got cucked by the Pope, and then stabbed in the ass while taking a shit. Also, why would you choose to stab him through the ass while he's shitting? Like, that seems unnecessarily messy, doesn't it? Was it the murderer waiting in a shithole with a dagger? Oh, God free the Hunchback, I feel for you. While at first glance, the Hunchback seems like a needlessly cruel title, after learning more about you, I can honestly say that it's maybe a better alternative to Godfrey the stepsister stupper, or Godfrey the unfortunate shitter. It's unclear, by the way, who orchestrated his murder. Some sources say Matilde, but that's unlikely. She didn't have much influence outside of Italy, and Godfrey had plenty of enemies closer to home. I'm tempted to end the episode here. I mean, mean, hard as I try, I don't think I can top this. I will try, though, because this is where our crusade leader finally enters the tale. See... Godfrey the Hunchback was too busy getting shaved in the rear to have kids, but he still needed an heir. Now, it's not clear when, but at some point between 1071 and 1076, Godfrey chose to nominate his nephew as his heir. He may have thought this was a temporary measure before he managed to win his wife back by spreading rumors that she was sleeping with the Pope. As you might guess, his nephew was none other than Godfrey of Bouillon. Godfrey of Bouillon was the son of Ida, Godfrey the Bearded's daughter, and a fellow by the name of Eustace, Count of Boulogne, which was not in the German kingdom, but across the border, in northern France. Eustace had been a key supporter of Godfrey the Bearded's when old Godfrey had rebelled against the German king way back in the 1040s. His first marriage had been to a woman named Gora, the daughter of King Athelred II of England, and even though she died, Eustace appears to have held on to some English possessions. In 1057, Eustace had married Ida, and they'd had three sons, Eustace III, who would eventually inherit his father's possessions, the man of the hour, Godfrey, and a younger son, Baldwin, who we'll also be seeing in the future. In 1066, Eustace decided to participate in an interesting venture with a former enemy, Duke William of Normandy. What venture, you ask? Nothing more and nothing less than the seizure of the entire kingdom of England. Multiple sources state Eustace was a skilled knight, and they even place him alongside William at the death of Harold Godwinson during the Battle of Hastings. The famous Bayeux tapestry even shows Eustace carrying the papal banners that had been granted for the invasion. However, shortly after the conquest, the new king of England, William, and Eustace fell out probably over the division of the newly acquired English lands. Eustace likely wanted land directly across from him on the channel to control trade in the region, and he didn't get it. So sources close to Williams Court actually paint Eustace as a coward who attempted to flee at the Battle of Hastings. The famous Domesday Book, an extensive survey of the newly conquered kingdom of England, still records Eustace as owner of various lands around Essex, and states that his annual income was 770 pounds, which might not sound like a lot now, but back then made him one of the wealthiest men in Northern Europe. Just to fast forward a bit here, in 1087, Eustace II died, and was succeeded by his eldest son, Eustace III. By this point, William the Bastard had also died, and left the Duchy of Normandy to his eldest son, Robert Kurthose. But he'd left the rich kingdom of England to his third son, William Rufus. Eustace III decided to assist Robert in an attempt to seize the Kingdom of England as well, which failed, and as a result, William Rufus revoked the family's lands in England, putting them back in second tier status. Robert Kurthose will be coming up again though. Anyway, going back to 1076. When Godfrey the Hunchback died, he named his 16-year-old nephew, his daughter's second son, and his namesake, Godfrey of Bouillon, as his successor. The reason for his choosing Godfrey might be that his nephew had been sent to live with him at some point, and they'd formed a bond. In these aristocratic circles, nephews were often sent to act as squires for their uncles. As I said, it's also unclear when exactly Godfrey the Hunchback chose to name his nephew as his successor. It might have been a snap decision on his deathbed, or something he'd planned earlier on. Whatever the case may be, Godfrey of Bouillon was not going to have an easy time obtaining the ducal office. Shortly after Godfrey the Hunchback's death, the German king went to Lorraine, to the city of Utrecht, to formally issue a statement condemning Pope Gregory and blah uh, blah 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 Go listen to episode 2.2 and 2.5 or whatever. What's more important for us right now is that he also had to name a new duke of Lower Lorraine. Henry IV definitely trusted Godfrey the Hunchback's judgment but there were issues with naming Godfrey Bouillon Duke of Lower Lorraine. The younger Godfrey, again only about 16, was mostly untested in battle, and Henry needed a firm hand on his western border, in case he had to deal with the Saxons again or Gregory in Italy. Godfrey's father, Eustace, was also technically a vassal of both the French king and the English king, who both had reasons to get involved in Lotharingian politics. The emperor had another choice, though. Godfrey the Hunchback's cousin, Albert III of Namur, who was also married to Frederick of Luxembourg's widow. Remember Frederick? He'd been given Lower Lorraine after the death of Godfrey the Bearded's brother. All this strengthened Albert's claim to the duchy. Henry went for option three and named his son Conrad as Duke of Lorraine. Conrad was, at the time, two years old. I actually mentioned this briefly back in episode 2.5. Now, naming a two-year-old might seem like a slap in the face to both Godfrey and Albert, but there's another way to read all this. Conrad was only two, and he was likely to become eventually emperor and king and all that. He wouldn't need that small duchy. So Henry might have meant him as more of a placeholder duke. When Godfrey of Bouillon proved himself, then they could talk about that ducal office. If Henry had named Albert, that would have been a more permanent choice. And it's not like Henry completely fucked Godfrey over. He named a margrave of Antwerp, a decent position. Godfrey also inherited the lands directly held by the family ardennes Verdun, including the castle of Bouillon, which is how he got his name, and the de facto family capital, Verdun. Meanwhile... The nominal Duke of Lorraine, Conrad, was a two-year-old poopy-diaper toddler, and so he would never actually be involved in the administration of Lorraine. So Henry named Albert III of Namur as a sort of a vice-duke, a much more temporary role to placate that fella as well. This actually made things a bit more complicated for Godfrey, because his role as Margrave of Antwerp made him subservient to Albert, who was the acting Duke of Lower Lorraine and Albert decided to claim a right to several of the ardennes Verdun lands, including the castle of Bouillon itself. Meanwhile, Matilde, who was in Italy, also claimed rights to some of her estranged husband's lands. And in the city of Verdun, the bishops, who had increasingly gained political power in the city, also made a play for control. These three actors joined forces against young Godfrey of Bouillon, who was, again, only 16, and weakened his power in the region of Lorraine. During this period, his closest ally was actually the Bishop of Liège, Henry, who had been placed there by Godfrey the Hunchback, and was a member of the Ardennes family. In 1082, Henry of Liège became the first bishop in the Kingdom of Germany to proclaim the peace of God in his bishopric. We've talked about this before, this movement, which had first caught on in Aquitaine, in southern Gaul. It placed restrictions on military activity and represented the first concrete steps towards ecclesiastical control of lay warfare. Godfrey of Bouillon was a staunch supporter of Henry's decision to institute the peace of God in Germany, well, in Lorraine at least. Which was likely a response to chaos in the region after the death of Godfrey the Hunchback. Lorraine had in fact been descending into madness for a few decades. The revolts of Godfrey the Bearded and the subsequent shifts in power as new dukes, foreign to the region, were brought in to manage affairs, had allowed petty local powers to grow stronger. And by the 1080s, Lorraine was looking a bit like a Wild West zone. Simon John has this to say about Godfrey's decision to participate in the peace of God. Quote, Godfrey's participation in the Peace Assembly yields important information on this phase of his career. First, it strongly suggests that he was present in Lotharingia at the time it was held. Secondly, it indicates that his activities continued to align with those of Bishop Henry of Liège. Thirdly, it shows that he was in contact with an ecclesiastical authority which sought to intervene in the lives of arms bearers and impose spiritual sanctions on those who contravened its decrees on the waging of warfare. End quote. Another important development by the 1080s was the investiture controversy. By this point, the Pope and the German king had fallen out for good. In 1084, Henry would end up invading Rome and installing his own anti-pope, Clement, and finally succeed in being crowned emperor. An important question here, considering Godfrey's eventual decision to crusade, is what exactly his position was on all this. Well, his closest ally, Henry of Liège, was a noted anti-Gregorian, so he definitely wasn't hearing any good things about the reformed papacy from that source. But it's hard to tell how much Godfrey bought into the imperial side of the investiture controversy. Various sources claim that Godfrey was a key participant in two German campaigns of the era. The first was in combat against the Duke of Swabia, Rudolf, who had attempted to remove Henry from power in 1080 in support of Pope Gregory. William of Tyre, who lacks a lot of the historical context and seems to conflate Godfrey of Bouillon with his uncle, Godfrey the Hunchback, relates the story in the following way. Quote, Another deed of no less glory which abides ever in the memory of men we deem worthy of inserting in this present writing. The Saxons, fiercest of all the German peoples, had refused to endure the yoke of the Roman Empire. Desiring to roam about freely without restraint, they had shaken off the rules of discipline which bound them, and revolted from Emperor Henry. To such an extent was this determined audacity carried, that they established as king over themselves, in opposition to the Emperor, a certain count named Rudolph, a nobleman of their own people. Roused by this injury, the emperor had all the princes of the empire summoned. When they were gathered in his presence, he set before them the wrongs, so well known to all, and called on them for revenge. Zealous for the glory of the emperor, and angry at the monstrous conduct of the Saxons, all offered their services and promised troops. Such a wrong against the Roman Empire must not be left unnoticed, they declared, but must be expiated by death. And the crime of les majestés, crimes against majesty, must be wiped out by the avenging sword. At the command of the emperor, therefore, they assembled, as arranged at the appointed place on the day set leading with them countless thousands. From all lands of the empire they came, both ecclesiastical and secular princes, determined to invade the land of the Saxons by force and take vengeance for so monstrous a crime. The day set for the engagement approached. The legions of both armies were drawn up in battle array, ready for action. Then the emperor summoned his principal men, and inquired to whom of their number he might with safety commit the imperial standard, and make commander-in-chief of the vast host. The response was immediate and unanimous, that Godfrey, Duke of Lorraine, was by far the most capable, and best fitted for that responsibility. To him, however, as the one chosen by so many thousands, and in the opinion of all, a man of unsurpassed excellence, the emperor confided the eagle. Still, Godfrey himself very reluctantly and unwillingly accepted the honor. On that day, while the armies on both sides were fighting gallantly and pressing each other hard with their swords, it happened that the duke, who was leading the Emperor's forces with the eagle, moved against the lines led by the pseudo-King Rudolph, and thus directed the forces under the Emperor's command thither. When Godfrey reached the king's lines, they broke up in utter confusion, and before the very eyes of the emperor and some of his nobles, the duke plunged the standard which he was bearing into the heart of the king. Then throwing the lifeless body on the ground, Godfrey once again raised aloft the imperial standard all stained with the blood of the king. When the Saxons saw that their king had fallen, they also gave way and surrendered to the emperor. Okay, this is very clearly a made-up tale. (laughs) As historian Pierre Robet puts it in his biography of Godfrey, which I'm translating from French myself, by the way, so sorry for any mistakes, Quote, The famous account of this out-of-the-ordinary feat of arms was accepted without further examination by all historians, until the wave of hypercriticism which, at the end of the 19th century, blew to bits this all-too-beautiful arrangement. Today, all specialists, without exception, have pointed out its conventional character, its approximations, and its implausibilities. No contemporary chronicler breathes a word of an exploit that, at the very least, would have been talked about. End quote. Godfrey is also mentioned as a possible participant at the sack of Rome. This is definitely more plausible than a tale of him stabbing a Swabian to death with a standard, as is some level of participation in putting down the Swabian revolt. However, If he did either of these things, it doesn't really speak to close ties with Henry. Despite what William says, he's not recorded in any of the German documents of the era as a key contributor. So if he was present, he was more likely than not one vassal among many, honoring his responsibilities to his liege. Not a key ally. Whatever he personally felt about the conflict between the emperor and the pope is really hard to tell. However, Godfrey seems to have been at least loyal enough in 1087 after over a decade of service as the margrave of antwerp he was named duke of lower Lorraine, the title his uncle had left to him all those years ago shortly after the former duke conrad all of 13 years old was officially named king of germany a standard position for the heir to the imperial throne What's telling here is that after 1087, after finally receiving the title of Duke, Godfrey more or less disappears from the imperial record. There's no sign that he became a key member of the inner circle, so to speak. This, more than anything, speaks to a certain distance between Godfrey and the emperor. If he had received the duchy as a reward for loyal service, you would think that he'd become a more active member of imperial projects, as his uncle had once been, particularly during a time when the emperor had a lot of shit going on but the investiture controversy was controversial. Henry IV was finding it difficult to rely on anyone, and Godfrey may have had not only moral qualms about what Henry was doing, naming anti-popes and such, but also doubts that tying his raft to Henry's boat was not such a good idea. He wouldn't participate in an open rebellion, but he was content to just mind his own business. As for Henry, well, like I said, it was hard to find good vassals that wouldn't just stab you in the back. Godfrey may not have been a friend, but at least he wasn't an enemy. And the situation in Lorraine may also have been a contributing factor. It was getting out of hand. Maybe Godfrey of Bouillon, who had been chosen by the last ruler who had been able to control it, Godfrey the Hunchback, would be able to get the situation in hand. We know very little about Godfrey's rule as Duke of Lower Lorraine, and this speaks to a relatively low-key profile. There's only really one incident that tells us what his perspective was in the years leading up to the First Crusade. And it has to do with the Bishop of Liege. Remember that Henry, Bishop of Liege, was not only a relative of Godfrey's, but a close ally. In 1092, Henry of Liege died. And his replacement was a controversial one. The emperor chose a fellow named Otbert, who was extremely unpopular in the region. To the point that he had apparently been expelled by Henry of Liege at one point. Immediately, claims that Otbert had paid for the office erupted throughout Liege. This was the age of simony simony. Otbert was also a bit of an imperial bootlicker. The exact details of what went down in Liège with Otbert and Godfrey are a complicated political mess we're going to skim over. Also, this is going based on basically just one source that has some corroboration, but not a lot. The gist of the thing goes as follows. The new bishop, Otbert, attempted to remove two abbots and replace them with, allegedly, excommunicated criminals who had paid for these offices, allegedly. The rightful abbots fled, and when the monks of these abbeys decided to send the prophets to their previous abbots, instead of the ones Otbert had installed, Godfrey instructed his men to ignore this defiance of Otbert's orders. Godfrey also apparently raided some of Otbert's caravans at the same time. The situation came to a head, and a public trial was organized to determine if Otbert had done the right thing or not. Knowing that he would lose, Otbert then went to Godfrey and offered to bribe him if he'd sabotage the trial by not showing up. Godfrey accepted the bribe, but then decided to publicly denounce Otbert anyway, forcing the bishop to bring back the original abbots. Another key factor in all this is that the original abbots were close allies of none other than Pope Urban II, who was obviously not popular in imperial circles. In fact, we do have records of direct correspondence between these abbots and Urban, who was a champion of their cause, likely because it allowed him to criticize Bishop Opbert, who had been placed in his seat by the German emperor. The Liège situation shows three things. One, Godfrey was totally willing to ignore imperial policy in supporting the claims of abbots aligned with the Reform Papacy over imperial bishops. But two, he was also willing to ally with imperial agents, like Otbert, if he was sufficiently bribed. And three, Godfrey of Bouillon was pretty small potatoes. Godfrey the Hunchback had been a key military ally of Henry IV, leading the charge against Saxon rebels. Godfrey the Bearded had been the emperor's shield-bearer, and a dangerous rival for power to the previous emperor. Both of the previous Godfreys had made allies and enemies far and wide throughout Europe. Godfrey of Bouillon was extorting local bishops. That's as far as his influence spread, just a few feet from his front door. And during his decade-long stint as Duke of Lorraine, he seemed unwilling, or unable, to raise his profile any higher. In a 1094 charter drawn up by Godfrey, he refers to himself as Godfrey, legitimate successor and heir of Duke Godfrey the Bearded, and his son, the most powerful and just Duke Godfrey, my uncle. Nearly 20 years after the death of his predecessor, Godfrey still felt himself to be living in the shadows of Godfrey's past. So what have we learned today? Well, contrary to what the grand epics by men like Torquato Tasso might state— When you strip away the varnish, underneath tales of the great hero of the First Crusade, underneath the mythic figure of epic romances, the champion of all things good and virtuous, Godfrey of Bouillon seems to have been exceptionally average. He was a minor duke who'd managed to somewhat adequately run his duchy. He hadn't expanded it, but he also hadn't gotten himself killed or totally removed from power. He was no terrifying warrior like Bowman of Tarento, and he was no savvy political operator like Raymond of Toulouse. Those were two men who, by 1094, had already earned their future biographies. At the same time, Godfrey of Bouillon was a footnote to a footnote in the grand scheme of things. He likely would have gone down in history as the vague successor to his uncle, Godfrey the Hunchback, who was infinitely more interesting except for what was about to happen in 1095. In 1095, well, we all know what happened. And it was from this moment on that Godfrey of Bouillon would earn that biography. Next time on History of the Outremer, we'll dig deep into Godfrey's decision to take up the cross and the trail of blood he followed right to Constantinople. Hello, little uh, end tag here, doing another call to action. This one um, for ratings. You know, uh, most of these podcast apps, they have like this thing where you can like choose like a rating or something. Now, I have to admit that there's one thing I don't get. It's like, why is it a star rating? It's ridiculous because now I have to tell you, you give me five stars. And it's like, I don't think my podcast is a five star podcast, but like, it's, it's like, What are you going to do with three stars? It really should be like a thumbs up, thumbs down scenario because I'm never going to tell someone like, you know, I'm going to recommend it or I'm not going to recommend it, you know? Like I think it should just be like, thumbs up, I like it, you should listen to it, thumbs down, no, don't listen to this. Um, But you know big rating system they've trapped us into this illusion of choice of freedom with our stars like oh look how many stars i can give it i can give it two i can give it three i can give it four why what does that mean what does a two star like it's either good and you want to listen to it or it's bad (sighs) i guess you can go give me three stars it's fine